Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. If I have a patient who has a functional bowel disorder, they've, they've come to me with a problem and I'll say, I acknowledge you have a problem, okay? You are symptomatic, it's affecting your quality of life, therefore there, there is an issue. However, the conventional tests that we have done, whatever manner of tests that may be, things to look inside, things to measure function, pressure, etc., acid, etc., all of those tests have essentially come back as normal. That does not mean that you don't have a problem. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Today, I welcome Dr. Salaha Mahmood onto the podcast. She's winner of MasterChef in 2017. She's an NHS gastroenterologist and author of three cookbooks, including the latest, The Kitchen Prescription, which is out at the end of March. And in the knowledge that the more diversely we eat, the lower our risk of disease, like heart disease, diabetes, obesity, depression, the more enhanced our immunity. Salahat and I chat about how we put this into practice on a day-to-day basis, both with patients and our own personal lives. Salaha has a real passion for gastronomy, as you'll tell on today's podcast. And she pairs that with an incredible empathic approach to gastroenterology. And I really think there's lots of nuggets of wisdom that you'll get from today's chat. We talk about functional gut disorders, how Salaha approaches food in clinical practice, the spectrum of gut disorders, the beauty of cooking, and also how to increase diversity in kids' meals to improve gut health. Remember, you can watch the podcast on YouTube. Just click the link in the bio wherever you're listening to this, and that's a great no-cost way of supporting the podcast. You can also check out my Eat, Listen, Read newsletter every single week. I send you something to listen to, something to read, something to eat that will help you have a healthier, happier week. And remember, you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app from the Apple App Store and get access to hundreds of recipes that you can filter according to multiple health goals, including cardiovascular health, brain health, mental well-being. We've done all the research. We've looked at all the studies and we refined the dietary pattern and ingredients that you need to get into your diet. So all you need to do is filter through and have a look at our delicious recipes, each with step-by-step images to make cooking an absolute cinch. I really do hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please enjoy my chat with Dr. Salaha. Before we get started, here is a quick word from the people who make this podcast possible. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's a lot to unpack, I think. I, I You know, when I was thinking about what I wanted to chat about um, with, with you today, it was really about your early interests in uh, nutrition. 
And then we can go into the food because I imagine, you know, very similar to my upbringing. So food was probably going to be like one of those things that was just from the moment you were born, you were just surrounded by spices and food and, you know, this like deep sort of cultural heritage that we share. Um, But when it comes to nutrition and preventative medicine and how we can utilize those aspects of food, I I wonder if you could talk to us a, a little bit about those sort of early uh, earlier parts of your journey? Yeah, I think for me, the interest in nutrition did start um, at medical school, quite by chance, I would say. Um, you're right. I mean, just like you, I grew up in a really foodie house. Food was extremely important. And in university, I was one of those people who was constantly fascinated by food, eating out a lot, reading about food, etc. I'd send a picture of lob- lobster thermidor with my dad's bank card next to it with before and after. You know. <laughs> uh, that, that's who I was. Um, But, you know, I think for me, the real turning point, which is one index event that I really remember very well, I walked into the lecture theatre and I was one of these uh, front five row kind of girls. Okay, so that means I was quite nerdy. Okay, Uh, it's all right. You're laughing because you sat on the back row, didn't you? Um, <laughs> I was definitely back row. <laughs> so uh, I was front five row kind of girl. And uh, once I wa- I was quite slim, um, uh, you know, I think medical school, you're just working hard and, you know, uh, you're very young as well. So you have a good metabolism. And I was quite thin and I was eating a galaxy bar. And as I walked past the the lecturer on the stage was also an expert in nutrition and the lecture was going to be on nutrient macro and micronutrients and um I walked past and I saw her staring at me and I thought oh my god I better hide this chocolate maybe we're not allowed food in the lecture theater and then she proceeded to reference me eating chocolate through the entire lecture (laughs) I'm not saying who I was but one of the comments that she made was if you're a thin person and you eat chocolate, nobody thinks anything. But if you're obese and you're eating chocolate, people will judge you. And that immediately made me think about humans in the context of what they eat, how one gains weight, the perceptions of people around obesity. Um, And really, it made me think, well, you know, I do love chocolate, but actually that doesn't represent who I am nutritionally and what my overall food intake is. And, you know, is it not okay for people to just be considered fine when they're eating chocolate? I had all these questions that suddenly came in my brain. And I found that as I asked those questions, I didn't actually have answers for them, or I didn't have people giving me the answers to them. I had to search myself for the answers. So it it stemmed from an experience of essentially what was I think fat phobia um, stemming in a very institutional way to me then realizing that the profile of nutrition within medicine is actually quite poor and it progressed. I'd go on to wards and I'd see elderly patients in my care of the elderly placements, for example. And I think, oh my God, you know, she's not eating any of her food. She's just wasting away. We should be trying to give her something more appetizing or, you know, I'd do my obstetrics placement and I think, oh my goodness, you know, these pregnant women, we need to inform them more about what healthy eating in pregnancy looks like or, I do my pediatrics and I'd see children with rotting teeth and I'd think, oh my goodness, you know, look at the amount of sugar that these children are consuming. So I think it was a personal interest and then I saw this huge deficit. Um, And that was probably one of the reasons why I eventually ended up choosing gastroenterology as as a career. Not because gastroenterologists talk about food. It's quite the opposite. Most gastroenterologists do not talk about food at all. But for me, it was the one career where food needed to be talked about most. So I felt that I could really make a difference to the specialty. And uh, that's how I've sort of found myself here um, through like, you know, an extraordinary journey of finding gaps in knowledge um, and thinking that there's a need for them to be fulfilled. Mm, yeah, that I mean, that that's such a lovely uh, sort of arc of, of your sort of professional journey. And I just wanted to pick up on the fact that isn't it crazy how gastroenterologists where you should really be talking about or even taught about nutrition from day one don't tend to talk about food uh in the context of what their patients should be eating but also what could be exacerbating certain conditions i I wonder if you can give us some insight into that and perhaps 
2022 slash 2023, what might be changing in the mindset of, you know, a gastroenterologist who is just starting out? Yeah, I mean, I I remember distinctly during my first independent gastroenterology um, outpatient clinic. So this was a clinic which was booked with 10 patients one afternoon, one after the other, they pop in with a range of ailments. And first of all, there was not one patient who did not ask me about food on that clinic. So there was not a single one who didn't ask me about food and eating in that clinic. And there was not a single one that I could answer correctly at that time. Okay, I could not give them the right information at that point in time in my career. And I remember one young girl who was very severely affected by intractable, horrible, irritable bowel syndrome. And her quality of life was awful because of it. And she just wanted to ask about what she could eat to try and alleviate her symptoms. She had to see a dietitian that we'd referred her to, but the waiting list was something like 18 months. So she was living in agony trying to, you know, working towards this eventual dietetics appointment and having all her hopes set on it. And she had done some research. And at that point, I hadn't done as much research. And she asked me, um, so what do you think of the FODMAP diet? And I was like, uh, uh, <laughs> um, for those who don't know, FODMAP is a very specific diet for patients who've got irritable bowel syndrome with bloating predominance and shouldn't be done on their, your own. You should do it with a dietitian. It's quite restrictive, but it can be very helpful for a select group of people. Now I know that. Yeah. At the time, I was like, oh, my God, what does FODMAP even stand for? And the way I had to blag in that consultation, I was like, do you know what? It's an interesting question. I think I'll have to put it to a panel of seniors and see what they think about that. And uh, I went back, I did some reading. I called her back later, had a chat to her about FODMAP pros, cons. But Interestingly, when I went to my senior colleagues, I then also noticed this huge disparity. I mean, FODMAP is one of the few dietary interventions that gastroenterologists do fairly regularly recommend for Mm. patients with IBS. But even amongst my gastroenterology senior colleagues, there was this huge disparity. So I I instantly understood that food becomes this gray area. Um, And, you know, a lot of gastroenterologists don't even know what the basic healthy eating advice that's correct that they should be giving people. And then obviously, when you add the layer of disease into that, digestive disease, it brings its own layer of complexity. So unpacking that is quite difficult. But I do think that in the last decade, since I've been working, certainly, there has been this transition whereby, you know, there is growing consensus that food matters, that patients are interested in food and therefore we should be talking about food. Um, And this growing consensus that particularly in the realm of functional bowel disorders, we're not doing enough by not talking about food. And we must talk more about food. So you see like very gently the tone in conferences sort of changing. Suddenly, you know, we've got the odd food symposium popping up here or there. Um, You know, suddenly you've got one or two lectures emerging about inflammatory bowel disease and and diet. So I just feel that there is a transition. Um, We're sort of on that turning point, but we haven't quite, you know, um, hit the problem head on and we haven't quite invested ourselves fully which is where I think I find myself a bit annoyed and stuck because I want to do food related consultations for every single one of my patients if I could if I could possibly do it Um, but you know logistically we're just not at that level yet we're not at that point yet we don't have the materials for people to take away etc but we're really missing a trick because for example you know i saw someone who has lots of tummy pain because of diverticular disease they need to increase the amount of fiber they're eating so we had a long chat about fiber consumption and what they can do and foods etc but other patients who haven't had that food related consultation will basically be at a loss until they see a dietitian in the nhs many many months later at which point you know they'll have months and months of symptoms the associated mortality morbidity that comes with all of these problems so um it really really is an issue um and i am glad that we're at sort of the wave of changes coming but we've certainly not gone full fully over it on the other side in any way, shape or form. And until as a profession gastroenterology does, 
I don't think that we can actually make massive differences to our patients' lives beyond, beyond you know, the chemicals that we give them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much there that I really want to unpack. And I think this is a really good foundational ground for our discussion today. And I'm sure we're going to meander all the time. But you mentioned functional bowel disorders there. And I wonder if you could uh, just give us some insight into exactly what we mean when we say functional bowel disorders, as well as the proportion of what you believe you see uh, and perhaps your colleagues see on a weekly basis of functional bowel disorders versus uh, others like diverticular disease, for example. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I simplify this for my patients and I say, if I have a patient who has a functional bowel disorder, they've, they've come to me with a problem and I'll say, I acknowledge you have a problem, okay? You are symptomatic, it's affecting your quality of life, therefore there, there is an issue. However, the conventional tests that we have done, whatever manner of tests that may be, things to look inside, things to measure function, pressure, etc., acid, etc., all of those tests have essentially come back as normal. That does not mean that you don't have a problem. What it means is that we don't have the technology and the basic biochemical level you know, insight to be able to understand exactly what is causing your problem. But clearly, there is something that is causing you symptoms and we need to get to the bottom of it. But our current conventional scientific knowledge and testing, testing ability doesn't allow us to tell you exactly what that is. And therefore, we, we say that you have a functional problem. This means does not mean there isn't a problem. It means that there's a problem that we can't exactly put in a, a clear-cut syndrome or box. So first of all, the key thing is acknowledging that there is a problem for that person. And that's inc- that is the single most important thing that you can do for patients because patients feel that they've been listened to they feel that their symptoms have been acknowledged and they feel that you know that they're not pretending and a lot of these patients carry the guilt and the weight of having a symptom but no diagnosis to back it up and when you say to them I acknowledge you have a problem we need to get on top of this problem and I'm sorry I can't explain this problem in a conventional way to you that's the biggest thing that you can do to lift that patient and then you go on to talking about dietary lifestyle things and chemical things that you can do i.e. medications and i tend to unpack it and say well look these are this is what the medicines say these are the things we can do to help you you know these are the side effects you might want to consider it and then we talk about diet and lifestyle invariably we have a long discussion about the person who they are where they find themselves in their life and whether they feel that stress compounds a lot of their symptoms. And when I really, I know I've hit the right sort of footing with a patient because I instantly have a connection with them and I they will then tell me something or divulge some information to me about their personal life, you know, financial difficulty, personal relationship difficulties, past stresses, etc., and they will say, well, you know, I have this this in my life. And no doubt when this is worse, this stress is worse, my symptom is also worse. And we have then a conversation about how the brain and the gut are incredibly connected. Um, the fact that they have these symptoms is completely natural because, you know, you have butterflies in your tummy when you do an exam. If you have anxiety long term, then, you know, you expect those symptoms to happen. You know, we it's it's very nuanced according to the specific symptoms that that person has, but you know, you do have these breakthrough moments where people realise, um, you know, what that they have to change something in their life in order to have some alleviation of their symptoms. So I I I said I actually said to one of my patients the other day, you know, I prescribe you a holiday. Be it Bogner Regis, you must, must get away from everything that you are doing to be able to try and lift this cloud away from you. And it's those patients where I've had that personal connection to be able to understand where stress is in their life and and how functional symptoms overlap with that, that I've had the most success, who thanked me most, who I feel most proud of in my career for helping. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a great amount of pride that you can take when you've treated someone who has a long-standing functional bowel disorder well. 
um, be that, you know, intractable acid reflux, be that horrendous bloating, be that terrible other IBS symptoms, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal pain that cramps them so bad that they end up spending half their life at home and not being able to fulfill their entire potential. It's incredible how important your gut is to your overall life's function. I just cannot, I cannot, um, I feel almost emotional when I talk about how important your gut is to your uh, a successful functioning life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and like, it's music to my ears to hear you mention all the other sort of lifestyle factors that really have a drastic uh, input into all c- conditions. But in particular, I think for people suffering with uh, functional bowel disorders, it's, it's so, so important to hear. And, and with regards to the proportion of people that you're seeing with these disorders, would you say it, it's growing? I mean, particularly in, in today's current climate with uh, you know stress through the roof, financial difficulties, I- increasing rates of um, uh, poverty. Is this something that is, is, is very noticeable for you on a week by week basis? A hundred percent. And, we are seeing more of it. Um, we see more of it in our clinics. But also remember that f- you, I always consider functional bowel disorders and non-functional bowel disorders to exist on a continuum. Okay, so people who have non-functional bowel disorders, like you know, real visible diverticular disease, real visible gastric ulcers, real visible Crohn's and colitis. Okay, those diseases exist as proper non-functional identities, but then they overlap somewhere as well with functional bowel disorders. So all those sorts of people will have a functional element to their symptoms. So absolutely everybody, even people with true scientific biological digestive health problems are sufferers of functional health bowel health problems and i also see it as normal people like you know people who don't need to see a gastroenterologist we are all on a continuum somewhere between absolutely normal and floridly IBS. Okay, so this is the continuum, normal IBS, okay? And some people spend most of their life on the normal side. Some people spend most of their life on the IBS side. But all of us at some point or another will swing towards the IBS side and back and swing and back depending on what's going on in our life and in our gut, most importantly. So to be able to break this thing down and actually normalize it and say listen you are functional i'm functional we all are functional you have ibs i have ibs everybody in the world has a bit of ibs you know that's really really powerful um so we need to almost normalize these things and say it is okay we all have bowel symptoms there is not a single person in this world who's not been horribly bloated horribly constipated you know have had not had i don't know anybody who's not had acid reflux at one time or another so there's a you your digestive system has this sort of universal language of symptoms and we are all familiar with it so we are seeing more of it, but the compassion for it needs to increase as well. The understanding of it and the normalization of it also needs to increase at the same time as us seeing more of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the way you've picked, uh, painted that picture of the spectrum. And, it, and I draw a parallel with a conversation I had with um, Drew Ramsey, who's a psychiatrist in New York. Uh, I think he also lives in uh, Indiana as well. And he said, you know, there are some stats that are banded around about how one in four people have uh, mental health. And he was like, four out of four people have mental health. We all have mental health difficulties, but it's that spectrum that you articulated there where, you know, on one side it is copable and, you know, day to day you are euthymic or you're you're very happy and content. And on the other side, you're so uh, low in yourself that you can't get yourself out of bed. And we swing in between those two to various degrees and I think normalizing that conversation in the same way you're you're discussing with functional bowel disorders is a really good framework to think about these things because it makes it a lot more compassionate, just like you were saying. Within that is is a problem though, um, because whilst there are many compassionate gastroenterologists like yourself, um, if you're waiting 12, 16, 18 months to see a specialist dietitian on the NHS, 
you're going to be exposed to Dr. Google. And, you know, Google's great. Don't get me wrong. I think Google has been responsible for a lot of my education. So I'm actually thankful that there are incredible search engines out there. However, if you're not approaching it with an analytical mindset and a scientific methodology, you are prone to misinformation. And that's where you get all these different erroneous diets that people, particularly if they don't have positive investigations, are prone to sort of indulging because they don't have any other avenues to to turn to. I don't know if that was what you were going to say next, but but yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, my thoughts on that is, yeah, Dr. Google is, is, um, is powerful and dangerous at the same time. Um, and I often have this conversation with my patients where I say, right, so what have you read then? Tell me, what have you read? And it's really important to know what they've read because they come out with the most wonderful things you can imagine. Um, and I really, really, I think that's one of the most important questions I have in my toolbox is, right, so tell me, what have you read? Um, and we don't ask our patients that enough. When you ask your patients what they've read and what some of the sort of truths they've created in their mind about nutrition are actually then you realize to work this you've got to break it all down and start bottom up which which and then that the question then comes you know first of all how can we point our patients to the right pieces of information and secondly what tools can we try and arm the general population with to try and put those people who are swinging in the pendulum from normal to ibse back towards the normal side most of the time okay and i think it, there's a real lack right now of standardized nutrition related materials that doctors not just gastroenterologists but other doctors more, more broadly can utilize for their patients and these are sort of you know british dietetics associations association style sheets um but not done in that sort of facty, facty, facty manner, done in like a practical way with a patient sat down looking at what they eat and saying, well, how actually can we put these recommendations in practice for you, you know, who you are, what your taste preferences are. So there's a lack of that. And that's certainly something that I would like to work on in my career going forward to try and help as many people as possible. And then the question is more broadly with the general population, how do we prevent that, you know, swinging towards irritable bowel syndrome, swinging towards functional bowel disorder? And the answer is finding joy in food. Okay. Um, food is joy. It is sensory. It's, you know, wonderful. It's amazing. It's the most, it is the most powerful thing and sensory experience that we can do for ourselves. What, what you eat for breakfast, lunch and dinner is incredibly important to your health going forward in the future. So I think a lot of work that I do is about framing food as this sort of joyous thing and framing food as something that isn't restrictive framing lifestyle eat based eating as something that isn't a diet something that is full of joy full of hundreds of different ingredients um and that's something that you do really well rupee and which is why your channel is so popular um because i think you really celebrate food and the joy that it brings to people you encourage people to eat you see, because if when a patient comes to you in clinic, they've been avoiding and restricting so many foods that actually life has become quite difficult. Um, it's hard to make food choices when you're stuck in that state. It's hard to be inventive about food. And it's hard to foster that really healthy, happy relationship with food when you're suffering with, with digestive symptoms. So to empower people and say, We've got to get you thinking about food in a positive way again. Food is joy. What are your favorite things to eat? What do you think healthy actually looks like? Do you think you could design a couple of recipes that fulfill these healthy criteria that I'm telling you about? You know, how can we build it up so you increase the repertoire of what you're eating? And actually, when you give that control back to people and you say, wait, hold on, you've been stopping yourself eating. No, 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 no. It's not about stopping what you're eating. It's about eating more. 
more, 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 more of the good stuff. Yeah. No dieting, no restriction, eating more of the good stuff. That's what I want you to do. And you've got complete control over it. It's not me. I'm not giving you recipes. I'm not giving you rules. What I'm giving you is the tools to be able to look after yourself long term. And the idea and the concept that diets don't work, restriction of food doesn't work, eating a full balanced diet full of color um, is what really is going to work for you. Cooking, cooking is so important. The important, you know, putting value on the importance of cooking is so, so, is just vital, you know. So encouraging people, yes, food is joy, but cooking is also joy. I mean, I, I sort of tell people, do you know you're a cocktivore? And they're like, what? I say, you are, you are a cocktivore. And they're like, what does that mean? So cocktivore is Latin for one who cooks. So as if you think about it, take a step back. As human beings, we are the only species who can cook. The only species who inhabits this earth who is able to cook. Cooking changed us. Okay, so cooking completely changed us. The ability to digest food that is cooked completely changed us because it meant that our gut shrunk, our brain size increased, and we became the human beings that we are today. So in Latin, they have this saying, coco ergo sum, which is I cook, therefore I am, you know, and we need, you know, we, we need to remember that cooking and eating food, a variety of different food is something that we have done, um, for many, many years. And on evolutionary terms is something that separates us from all of the other species that inhabit this earth which is why it is so fundamentally important because you know that fox down down in your garden at night he's not cooking some scavenger stew right no monkey is cooking any of their food in the jungle it is just us and that is why it's so important to not rely on ultra processed foods that you can just pick up it's important to cook from scratch at home it gives you a sense of control over what you're eating you can put a lot better stuff into your body and you can really rekindle that connection that you have with your evolutionary self mm, yeah i i mean i i could listen to you talk emphatically about food all day long and it's so lovely to hear uh, a colleague talk about it in these terms because I, I i sometimes i feel like i'm the only one and i certainly was when i was you know a, a junior gp registrar uh almost 10 years ago now like you know chatting to patients uh, about it and I, i'm just wondering like where where did you get this sort of energy from when describing food and looking at the history of food and sort of how did you manage to teach yourself the basic nutrition from you know back in the day where the fobat diet sort of like went over your head like what what was your your journey from from that patient onwards I mean I I'm very clear I'm not a dietitian um but I'm a gastroenterologist with an interest in food and I am a chef and author right so that is that's where my skill set lies also i'm just really greedy rupee i'm so so greedy i just want to eat i'm obsessed by food i'm utterly obsessed by food i have children i want to feed my children well i want to feed my husband well my husband's probably the most well-fed man in england honestly (laughs) (laughs) you know and uh, also subject to all of my experimentation but um yeah I, i think um, the desire comes from greed, um, food greed. I love food and I will always love food. I will love eating food more than anything. I think I love eating even more than I love cooking, right? So in order to eat the right things, I need to arm myself with the knowledge. Um, and then I think it's scientific curiosity, isn't it? I mean, we all have things that enthuse us, you know. Um, my husband loves football and knows so much about it. Uh, I love food and know so much about it. You know, it's just that is that curiosity from within um, to acquire knowledge. Um, and it's also very, very, very empowering when you know that that knowledge has actually made a difference and you've seen that it's made a difference. It's also very empowering to be in a career where you have a USP. You know, So I feel very lucky that, yes, I'm sort of different to many other gastroenterologists in a way, um, but I like to think that as a young gastroenterologist with an interest in health and well-being and lifestyle, that 
I'm making some sort of a difference where others haven't been able to make. So those sort of factors are all things which motivate me because, you know, I actually remember seeing The Doctor's Kitchen and your work for the first time, you know, close to a decade ago, roughly, was it? Was that how long ago you started? (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. uh, It feels like that sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I remember seeing your early work some years ago, and I was really, really impressed by it even then. And it's really nice to be able to find like-minded people to connect with. And this platform that you've grown is really powerful because you can attract people who are looking for the right answers. And I I guess one of the other things I'd say is I'm not arrogant about my abilities to provide answers. um, And I never overstate the truth with my patients. So nutrition is this incredibly sort of gray area. And I think it is one of the areas, I really think it's one of these areas in medicine which will stay very grey for a very, very long time. We're not going to always have the answers for what is the best to eat. And more and more we're finding that, you know, repeat what suits you might not be what suits me. You know, we've got very eminent professors, Tim Spector, et cetera, talking about personalization of nutrition. And it's incredible, you know, what nutrition looks like today is 100% not what it will look like in a decade. And it's not what it will look like in another 20 years. So um, we have to recognize that we're in this like um, flux, we're, we're in the flux, and we're also always just aiming towards best practice. So that's what I say to my patients, like, I can't give you the answer. Like, I can't tell you that having a bit of grains is not going to give you some bloating. Like, I just, I just cannot give you that answer, because people often in nutrition want black and white. So doctor are you saying it's okay yeah. for me to eat oats but it's not okay for me to eat chickpeas and I'm like mm, not really what I'm saying is I don't really know um you know and it, it's quite hard to deal in gray terms with people um w- one of the things that I found really helpful is slow changes um so I think when we talk about anything in our life changing it you know I know I've had two children and there's nothing more dramatic as when you have a child and how your life changes and it just sends you wild you know like life goes mad all of a sudden but you know I look back at those big transitions and I think I wish people had told me to break it down and take it step by step and just try and enjoy each moment and it's the same with food and lifestyle and health and nutrition related changes you know you have to you have to do it really really slowly so your journey doesn't look like you know a life of ultra processed foods and then you know bing i'm going to change my life now i'm going to eat fruit and vegetables legumes pulses nuts and seeds and you know cut down all my meat that it just doesn't work like that your bowel will go nuts if you do that because it is just not used to what you're putting inside it. You have to build up the change day by day, week by week. You have to really focus on the tangible gains that you've made because these changes, if you want to persist and make them for your life, it's not something that you can change overnight. In the same way that adapting to motherhood, for example, is not something you do overnight. You know, you get good at being a mum with years and years of practice and with making mistakes in between because, you know, my kids eat a fair amount of crisps and chocolate sometimes and, you know, c'est la vie, it just happens. So my point is this, we're not perfect. Nutrition as a field is far from perfect. So never sell yourself. This is my motto. I don't sell myself as the answer to everything. I say to people, this is what I think is best. This is how I think you should do it. And these are the tangible gains I think you'll have see what you think and enjoy the process because when you make those lifestyle changes and you make those food related changes you will notice an incredible difference to your energy level your skin you know um, your weight your um, ability to do more exercise etc it will change Um, and it is incredibly rewarding to see those people come back and say yes slow and steady does win the race so yeah I think focusing on the individual and their journey slowly and not making dramatic changes is quite important
one of the things that I, I've been quite keen to do throughout my career is sort of teach other medical students, teach other doctors about how they can sort, sort of instigate best practices. And it's not like rewriting, you know, nutrition. It's not about replacing nutritionists or dietitians. In fact, the nonprofit culinary medicine that we started um, is led by a bunch of nutrition specialists and we do case studies and we do sort of like, you know, how you would uh, sit down someone who is perhaps in a restrictive eating pattern and introduce things uh, step by step. Um, is this something that you're actively doing within gastroenterology or, or perhaps even on a wider scale? And, and, and perhaps, you know, you mentioned something about how you want to do this like going forward. Is that, is, are these things on, on your radar? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I've got very much got the philosophy of multidisciplinary team working ethic within gastroenterology, which will involve good dietetics um, teamwork. And uh, where I have seen the most successful gastroenterology is in tertiary centres where we do have dietetics input in joint clinical care. Um, and the sad part is that actually when you meet patients in tertiary centre care where they've finally got access to these brilliant dietetics and this integrated service that looks at their overall health um, from a physical point of view, from a spiritual point of view, from all, you know, every angle, it's really, really late in the disease process. And that's not the reality for most people. And then the other thing is that sadly, the NHS that we do live in is a, a it's a difficult system you know it is a it's a hard stretched system access to dietetics in in hospitals even where you've got inpatients is stretched i mean the last five hospitals i've worked in have always had a lack of dietitians um you know and are always struggling for um, proper dietetics input for patients and the dietitians there are so stretched and working so incredibly hard community dietetics is full to the hilt as well so i think um i think a multidisciplinary team working is functions best and is the gold standard the reality of making that something that is widespread is much much more difficult um not impossible bear in mind not impossible because you know what you have to do with in nhs life or in in you know work life is prove that there is some cost benefit to doing this right? So you have to prove that it is helpful to have um, a, a front-facing service where you have a gastroenterologist or any other healthcare professional plus a dietitian. You know, this applies to diabetes and endocrinology and general practice. So you have a, a front-facing dietitian with a gastroenterologist, with a psychologist. And if you can present yourself like that to people, to the world and say, look, we found that X number of patients did so much better than the other lots of patients who didn't get this service. And therefore, this is a model of how optimum gold standard care should look like. To do that, my goodness, it will take a gastroenterologist or two or three or four or 10 entire career to make that model a reality. That's not to say that's not what we should be working towards. We should be working towards that. Um, and there are many gastroenterologists who are working towards that. But it, it, but it's that interface of multidisciplinary care, when you reach it and you reach that point where you have good MDT care, that you have the most gains for patients. Um, because, you know, it's just like two professions that are allied to one another cross-fertilizing in a really beautiful way. I mean, when I wrote my second book, Foodology, I was always shocked at how disparate disciplines within food never talk to each other. Doctors don't interact as much as they should with dietetics. Food scientists don't speak as much as they should do with, with politicians. Politicians who are, you know, handling food and understand food at their level and distribution etc don't speak to farmers farmers don't speak to doctors you know you, you, there isn't this whole thing of food not being one homogenous sort of um 
discipline where different avenues and different people talk to one another. It just doesn't happen. Yet the most gains are made when different disciplines within food come together. I mean, I'm fascinated by work done by food scientists, for example. I mean, do you, like, for example, do you know, Rupi, crunch and crispy are two different things, right? So food texture, it's so important because so much sensory joy comes from the texture of food. People who have ailments, you know, they still want textures in food. I'm I'm always surprised by the fact that food scientists and gastroenterologists never talk to one another, virtually never. Okay, um, it, it it applies for the catering industry as well. You know, the catering industry is at such arm's length from clinicians, um, and a lot of the work you and I are both doing to do with improving healthcare for NHS, um, so improving access to food for NHS staff and improving the quality of food for NHS staff is is with that directly in mind that actually Rupi and Saliha are both chefs as well as doctors, and therefore we can give our joint chef and food input um, and make something nice happen there so you know it's it's on the edge where two disciplines or more meet that great things happen within food mm, yeah and I, I think I agree with everything you're saying but the sort of skeptical side of me is like my colleagues really just don't give a damn like a lot a lot of them not some of them do but some of them just like yeah but yeah, I'll just tell them to eat some like healthy food and stuff. But like in reality, the drugs are what work and the investigations are what, you know, it is going to be most useful to me. And really, this is the job of the dietitians. I don't have time for this. And I think there has to be buy-in from our colleagues if we're going to see these like incredible multidisciplinary teams that actually, you know, have massive benefits, particularly for those people who've been suffering for many years. Do, do you share the same skepticism? Because... That's definitely the pushback that I get when I speak to certain people. Yeah, I mean, no doubt there is so much scepticism. The scepticism of the work I do, of my philosoph- food philosophy and how it interacts with um, with gastroenterology, etc. There is scepticism, but also... I have to say, there's also this sort of secret interest in where it goes, you know, <laughs> you know, um, like, oh, I wonder what she, I wonder what she's going to do with this. I wonder, how, okay, that's interesting. So I think people, I think people are also secretly interested in seeing where it goes without having to be the trailblazers themselves. I think people want other people to trailblaze for them and then they will buy into it when they buy into it. Um, I, I want to convert people, but I don't want to convert people by force. I want to set a good example and allow them to follow. Um, and I think you're probably the same in some ways, you know, you probably just do, you know, someone said to me, one of my good friends said to me, you do you boo. And I agree. I do me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I do me. And, uh, if people want to follow or see any merit in that, they will. And I have full faith that as the specialty evolves, the interest in food will also increase because, you know, it's another, um, piece of armor in our toolkit don't get me wrong i'm still a gastroenterologist and i still prescribe medications okay because i believe in prescribing medications i believe in proper allopathic medicine and i believe in the evidence base behind it but i also believe in helping my patients and i know for a fact that my patients want to know about food so that's where I come in and say, well, I want to help you with food because you want help from food. Because actually, we know, uh, it's not just doctors, everybody knows that whenever you get ill, you want a food solution, okay? Whether that's a cold mm. or a flu or something minor that will disappear, you want a food solution. So I think it, within us is the belief that food matters, um, it's time pressures, external factors, lack of knowledge, not being able to have the desire at that point to do it. Those all things feature for people and don't allow you to get to the point where you make it part of your practice. But if more people set it as an example, if more research is done, if more research is conveyed to bigger audiences, I have full faith that, you know, in the next generation, um, food and lifestyle, health, lifestyle, well-being, medicine will be very closely integrated to most hospital specialties, but particularly gastroenterology. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree. And I think a lot of what I 
have to do actually is to re-educate people that it's not an either or it's an and and just because yes i'm bullish on the impact of food and nutrition as preventive medicine doesn't mean that you know you just completely abandon allopathic medicine or medications that the 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 many different disciplines the many different tools can be used in combination and actually work very well synergistically um and and actually you know to to your point about how people always want a food solution sometimes i i find myself reminding people like you know it's okay to to have medications. It's not like you failed yourself if you can only use a quote unquote natural way of protecting yourself or improving your immunity or whatever, whatever. You, you know, these are just extra tools that we have. Um, and 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 talking of tools and talking about you doing you, boo. Um, <laughs> I wonder if uh, you you could talk to us about how you look after you, your own health because you know, like you said, before we went live, uh, the the fact that you've been managing your your children, your, your job, you're still working in the NHS, like it's a lot to handle. Like how, how are you making sure that you're getting all those different features in your diet, your rainbow diet, your amounts of fiber, you're, you're still sort of, you know, looking after you. I think I have, uh, I've got some principles that I live, that I live by. So, um, I I do try and eat as many plant-based items of food as I possibly can within the course of a week. I don't really analyze it. Um, I don't really do counts of it um, because I feel I don't need to. And if there's a week where I'm a bit short, I know that I'll make up for it in subsequent weeks. Um, so I have this mental, you know, um, I have this mental count. Uh, rough. It's, it's not. It's not even a physical count or a tally or anything. I'm it just happens, you know, I'm an expert shopper. I'm an expert, expert <laughs> shopper. Um, so I know exactly where I'm going to find the bargains. Um, and I take loads of them home. My freezer is chocked to the full with frozen vegetables and fruit. Um, I have an incredible store cupboard, small, but full to the brim with very gut healthy ingredients I have so many lentils, so many pulses, you know, so many different nuts and seeds and stuff in my store cupboard. And I use them to my full avail. I, I try and make sure that everything gets used. It doesn't just sit at the back of the cupboard. I don't deny that having some cookery expertise means that I am more likely to be able to think creatively about what to do with those ingredients when I do have them. Um, so and and that's why I've I've written the recipes, um, uh, written my foodie recipes in my second cookbook, Foodology, and then in a proper cookbook that's coming out in March 2023, um, the Kitchen Prescription. So I can try and teach people how I quickly, efficiently um, manage to rustle together gut healthy food for myself and for my family. Um, I I think I am very wary of budget because I have to be. Um, I make sure that I uh, buy vegetables in bulk, um, particularly frozen vegetables, and I make sure that I use them as creatively as possible. Um, I really, really, really try to get my kids to eat the same thing that we're eating. Um, it can be challenging sometimes, and I acknowledge that sometimes I have to cook different things just to please them and get them fed. But most importantly, apart from the key thing of having as much fruit, vegetables, grains, legumes, nuts, seeds and pulses in my diet, I'm not hard on myself, Rupee. I allow myself to have food with that people wouldn't conventionally think is good for you. It is okay to sometimes have a macaroni cheese. It is okay to sometimes have a bowl of pasta because what would life be without a bowl of pasta? It would not be good. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't restrict carbohydrates. Um, I get carbohydrates from a variety of sources, though. Like I do get different grains in my diet. I have pearl barley one day, I have bulgur wheat another, I have couscous another, I have pasta another day. But I don't think there's a day in the week where I've had a carbohydrate free day. Let's put it that way. Um, I yeah. don't. I, one of the things I've really had to push coming from a Pakistani household. Um, where meat is a big focus is how I can reduce the amount of um, animal-based protein in my diet and my family's diet because I grew up on 
basically almost having meat every day because that was just the norm of how life food is cooked and vegetarian food was like the day off you know it wasn't the norm (laughs) so to flip that on itself I've had to work hard to flip that on itself um and I've had to you know change that for my husband as well um so it's uh I think I'm not the key things I would say is I eat a variety of food I'm conscious of budget and shop very intelligently and I allow myself to like discretions and I allow myself to be naughty sometimes without it affecting my self-esteem or confidence in my ability to eat a healthy diet overall so I sometimes say like in a kind of ironic way, you know, I feel like all my like nutrition chakras are aligned and I'm like in this kind of Zen space with my eating, um, which is how I want other people to be as well. If they can reach that point where they're comfortable with what they're having and not get too hung up on occasional plates of indulgence, it's, it's okay, you know. Yeah, yeah. It, it aligns very, I mean, I, I feel like my nutrition chakras are aligned now. Now that you just said that, it, it really did, that really resonates with me. Because uh, I, I, I don't count anything. I don't count calories. I don't count you know, portion sizes. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. But just naturally, if I were to examine my diet on a, on a daily or weekly basis, it's just like chock full of like variety, diversity, all the different types of foods. But like, if I'm thinking about what I had yesterday after I had Sunday lunch with my mum, dad and um, a partner, we shared a, a chocolate croissant with like a, um, an almond sort of glaive on top. And it was amazing. It was so good. It was freshly made. It was warm. It was delicious. I had hints of cinnamon on because it's like Christmassy time. So, you know, I still enjoy those things. And sometimes I feel like I have to post that kind of stuff on social media to remind people that it is okay. You don't have to eat, you know, 100% clean the entire time. You know, it's actually important to introduce some, some uh, uh, like healthy treats, not not healthy treats, but just treats into your diet. And and I don't really see it as a treat. I just see it as like, well, this is just how I'm going to eat. Totally. Because, you know, you, you have to see where you live, like which world we live in. And indulgence is a part of, of life. You know, people... Mm-hmm. You know, people still consider going out for a steak, for example, being as a celebratory thing to do, for example. So, you know, therefore, are you going to stop eating steaks because it's got lots of saturated fat and is an animal based protein? Well, for me, no, because I'm, I'm I'm not a vegan either. I I um I see the merits of vegan eating. Um, and I understand the um, I understand the ethical reasons for vegan eating as well, but I'm not a vegan at this stage in my life, um, and so I I I do eat animal protein and I do enjoy it, but it's a, it's something to be had on occasions, right? So it's not something that's for every single day. So it's when those it's when you're eating that pattern of food all the time that actually the pleasure from it has gone that's one of the reasons Rupi why that croissant was so joyous yeah was because you do eat such lovely wonderful diet normally which gives you great pleasure so when you have that item that has that lovely sugar and fat and those nuts and spices in it and tastes so utterly wonderful you can appreciate it it's like life with contrasts isn't it you you have to you have to have sadness to appreciate joy not that the other food you eat is sad but you know what I mean like there's always got to be (laughs) there's always got to be like when you have the contrast that's when you appreciate the other type of food more and and I'm talking about this and that type of food but actually you know we shouldn't think about it like that but you know all food has its place I mean when I wrote my first cookbook foodology I sort of wrote chapters examining why we love crisps you know I wrote a recipe for an egg sandwich stuffed with ready salted crisps in my book as testament to the fact that crisps taste so good in sandwiches, right? Um, I, I have written recipes with 
with steak in them. Um, I've written recipes with potatoes um, because these are the things that we absolutely love. I've written buttery recipes, but in contrast, I've also written recipes which are, you know, lush in brassicas and, you know, eating the whole rainbow or teaching people how to use grains, etc. Because every type of food has a place in our life. And it's important to not forget that all those different foods do have a place in your life. I mean, I wrote chapters on chocolate for example and you know why chocolate is so addictive and the benefits of chocolate and you know th- that 50 50 mix of sugar and fat and what it does for your taste buds and you know i've written about and um, you know what effect sugar has on the brain's reward pathways and why it is that you love a magnum so much you know when you crunch into a magnum and the chocolate breaks what is it about the texture and taste of that that makes it so desirable so a true food lover a really true food lover who's found their gastronomic zen and all their chakras have aligned will not see healthy and unhealthy foods as two disparate objects. They will see all food lying on a continuum and they will allow themselves to eat everything in moderation and actually will, by virtue of that, eat an incredibly good variety of food overall. Yeah, absolutely. When you mentioned Magnum, uh, suddenly it just got like a uh an image of mo gilligan's latest uh, stand-up i don't know if you've seen it he he talks about how when he was a kid he uh took extra money from his mum and went to go buy a magnum and he describes eating the magnum, <laughs> eating the, magnum <laughs> the crunch of it and then you get down to the stick and the, and you get to the stick and then you're like biting off the chocolate off the wooden part of it and like wh- when he's describing it i'm literally like Oh my God, that's literally my childhood right there. The Magnum. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I have to see that. I haven't seen that. <laughs> You've got to check it out. It's really good. Um, I'm going to ask you two more things. So ki- everyone who, who's listening, who's got kids, they're going to want to know some of your hacks for getting vegetables and variety into their diet. So you must have come up with a few uh, since, since, having, since having children. So w- what are some of your sort of uh, tops? tips for uh for sneaking veggies into kids and nutrition oh um the blender is your best friend (laughs) honestly the blender is your best friend uh one of my top tips is basically hiding it so i'm not i'm not gonna fool with you literally i'm not lying to you and saying oh you know i'm really good at this and your kids will have it if you tell no kids are stubborn they don't have it when you want them to have it okay that is just reality and if anybody tells you otherwise they're lying okay (laughs) so the way you have to do it is you have to conceal it and therefore for example when I make a tomato sauce you know I'll steam some vegetables and blend them and then blend them into the tomato sauce so they've got no idea I am proper deceitful with my children and I'm proud of it. <laughs> um, the other thing is to not give up. I think I once sort of heard a Nigella interview somewhere along the way. And I think she had quite a nonchalant kind of relaxed approach. And she was like, well, they'll eat when they eat. You know, they will have an appreciation for good food and it will come. And I do believe that I've got an eight year old and a two year old and they're on very different food journeys at the moment by virtue of their age. Um, because, you know, children's tastes are very, very different and their taste buds are much more alive than ours are. And eating is a far more sensorial experience for them. So we have to remember that as well. So they sometimes are not able to handle food that is incredibly flavorsome that we love in the same way. So just be patient. You just got to keep trying and you've got to be okay with failing with your kids. Like you, you've got to be fine with them not eating it, you know, and not be hard on yourself. Like you're not a failure if they didn't eat your food. That's one of the key things for my kids. Third thing that's important for my kids, I think, is um, to, to take them shopping with me. Um, if you've got kids who grow up, who are growing up, make going to the supermarket really exciting. So I do like really, really nerdy things like, you know, I'll talk to them about the Latin names of different foods. Um, you know, like, for example, I'll be like, it's an aubergine, but is it an aubergine? No, it's a Solana Melangina. 
right? You know, so you just try and make like some big joke of like where you are and what they're picking. So they develop this sort of familiarity with fruits and vegetables and gut healthy ingredients um, and a desire to know a bit more about them because they can have a laugh with you about it. And, you know, like I sort of make funny days for them, like I call Wednesday Vegna's Day, you know, because it's vegetarian food day or, you know, you just got to, you got to, got to make it silly basically you got to make food silly yeah. for your kids yeah. um yeah so I think those would probably be my top tips so go shopping with them don't be too hard on them and yourself if you fail at it um and and the last thing I'd say is um if they're hungry they'll eat okay so if your kid goes to bed without dinner they've gone to bed without dinner okay <laughs> if they're hungry they will eat anything in front of them yeah anything you put in front of a hungry child will be eaten because hungry children eat so if they've gone to bed without eating dinner you don't need to be too hard on yourself they weren't hungry yeah you know that is conjuring so many memories for me when i was a kid and i was just like you know being stubborn about not eating anything and then my mom would just be like well you're not eating and then eventually of course i ate like you know it's just the way it was what we were growing up with i mean i i grew up in a family where you were fed dinner and then once you've eaten dinner my grandma would sit down and be like right here's a banana now you eat the banana so like <laughs> it was like oh my god you know like we don't need to push it the other way but um yeah i really really truly believe that when a child is hungry they will eat and i don't i really believe that children don't stay hungry intentionally so lightening the load off yourself letting them be hungry like letting them get to the point where they want to eat is really important and making food fun and hiding hide hiding those uh you know occult vegetables is where it's at I love that. That's so good. Um, talk to us about the uh, kitchen prescription. I love the name. And uh, I love the fact that you're going to be talking to us about those sort of strategies and hacks that you can do to introduce delicious, diverse foods that support your gut and support every other element of, of your uh, body um, on a daily basis. I'm, I'm super excited for it. Yeah, I mean, I am too. I'd say it's probably my best set of recipes yet. Um, they are, interestingly, my easiest recipes as well. And they're the sorts of things that I eat most myself. Um, I suppose the subtitle to the kitchen prescription is 101 Simple, Nutritious, Delicious Recipes to Optimize Your Gut Health or Revolutionize Your Gut Health, something like that. And um, it's just what it says on the tin, really. It's just the way I eat you know, all the things we've talked about, how I put them into practice in my kitchen, in a cost-effective, family-friendly way, um, and in a very delicious delicious way, basically. Um, you know, I sort of take simple things that you'd normally eat, like a cottage pie, and make it the gut-healthy version of it, or just teach you how to think in a gut-friendly way, or a gut-healthy way. And, um, I don't want to complicate what the book does. The message is very simple, actually. Um, there's some reading material as foundation in the beginning of the book, and then it's a proper, illustrated, fun cookbook, really vibrant. Um, it's got stuff in there for feasts and merze platters and freezer and store cupboard and lazy dinners and quick lunches that are portable, breakfasts, you know. Um, it's got it's basically a manual on how I live my life um, and how I cook. Uh, and I, I think it will be really helpful to a lot of people. I love that. And uh, the portable lunches just definitely sounds right up my alley because everyone needs some Tupperware ideas and stuff because it can get a bit stale otherwise. So yeah, no, that sounds fab. And w w when it's out, we're, we should hopefully have uh, a studio where we're going to be doing a lot more sort of filming and all that kind of stuff so we'd love to to, to cook one of those recipes uh, oh yeah uh, let's do it let's do it <laughs> i'd love that this this has been fantastic thank you so much this you're awesome. welcome it was great fun thank you Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Doctor's Kitchen. Remember, you can check out Dr. Salaher's book, The Kitchen Prescription, where all good books are sold. And you can check out all our links as well on the show notes. Have a wonderful day and I will see you here next time. Imagine 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 